keep calm and wash your hands often. As you heard in the headlines this morning, Maui uh, Mayor Mike Victorino urged people to remain vigilant and take precautions against getting sick. That includes getting a flu shot. Maui County is working closely with state health officials to provide any updates. The risk of the islands is still low, no confirmed cases yet. We talked to State Health Director Bruce Anderson just within the last hour this morning. The Department of Health is continuing to follow up with all the reports that we've been getting. But today we have no cases of coronavirus. COVID-19 is what it's called now. In fact, we have no individuals here who we consider to be at high risk, with the exception of the one individual who's been quarantined at the uh, facility at Pearl Harbor. Incidentally, his quarantine period will end on Sunday, the 22nd, and uh, hopefully he'll be able to go home then. He has no symptoms of any or any illness that could be attributed to uh, COVID-19. As far as I know, he's healthy and just eager to go home. The Japanese traveler who uh, was here and has now returned to Japan, as far as we know, is still in the hospital. Uh, his wife, who also was infected, has recovered, and actually she has been very helpful in, in providing a very detailed description of their travel here. And we're continuing to look at potential contacts. But so far we haven't found anyone who we consider to be at even medium or, or high risk. Those who he did have contact with, we would consider to be at low risk. People who we met casually or had relatively short conversations with while he was here. So um, that's all good news. We are, though, following up and continuing to look at contacts. As we find out more, we will keep you all apprised of that. But um, the good news is we, we, we don't think that he was transmitting the disease while he was here. At least we have no evidence that he has. And, and those contacts that we know about, we've contacted, and, and they are uh, aware of the situation. And, and, of course, will be calling us if they have any health problems. We understand that there was a meeting with a number of the unions you know, whether it's the stevedores or the hotel workers union. And given that uh, this one individual did stay at a, at a facility in Waikiki, um, anything that you want to underscore? We did contact management there. It was a timeshare down in uh, Waikiki area, and we did interview individuals there, those who were helping with maintenance and so forth that may have been in contact with him. And, uh, and we didn't identify anyone who would be at high risk while he was on Oahu. We've also, by the way, contacted people who uh, may have had some exposure to him on Maui. He was not symptomatic on Maui, and as he was not having symptoms, we don't believe he was able to transmit the disease, even if he were in close contact with others. But having said that, um, he was not in close contact with others on Maui that we know of, and, and, and we are not at this point at least considering anyone there to be at uh, any increased risk. Um, our concerns were mostly with contacts here on Oahu, and uh, of course he did fly back to um, Japan where he became ill and uh, seriously ill ultimately. And, um, and uh, fortunately on the flights, both the flight from Maui to, to Oahu and on the flight to Japan, he was wearing a mask which helps to, to uh, prevent uh, the spread of the disease. So um, you know, we're hopeful that hasn't uh, been a problem. There have been a few uh, passengers that have come back uh, from that flight. We're monitoring their health. So far, we haven't seen any evidence of any illness among those individuals. We're continuing to screen at the airports. We're screening all international travelers who have a history of uh, being in China, only allowing those U.S. citizens who had a history of being in China back into the country. If, they, uh, if the other international travelers had a history of going to China within 14 days, we don't let them land here. So that helps to assure that we're not seeing a huge influx of uh, travelers coming to Hawaii. We're, we're monitoring, um, uh, home monitoring with public health oversight, about 30 or 40 individuals. That varies from day to day. We're actually seeing the numbers come down now because the original cohort of individuals who uh, came from China have passed their 14-day quarantine period, and, uh, and so they, they can go home and, and uh, and live life normally and uh, relatively assured that they're not, they're not uh, carrying any virus that would be a problem for anyone else. None of those individuals has shown any sign of symptoms that could be a coronavirus. So, so far, all that, that's all good news here, but we're being vigilant about um, monitoring those who have been to China and, and, uh, and of course, anyone who uh, has been exposed to um, the, 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 
those who few people who have, have had infections here. What can you say about the testing kits? So what's the latest on, on arrival of another batch? Yeah, we um, we were hoping to have this, this uh, test kit up and running uh, by now, but um, as uh, many know, uh, there were some problems with the test kits when they were first mailed out to the states. The CDC is continuing to, um, to work on um, refining the kit to be sure that it is uh, sensitive and specific for the virus. Um, they um, anticipate that they will be rolling these kits out to the states in the not too distant future. They've been hesitant to say when. Uh, there are there's an interest now in, in doing what's considered beta testing, where they will be sending the kits to several laboratories across the country to be sure that it that it's um, specific for this virus, and um, and then uh, and then after they've finished that, they will then roll the test kits out to all the states. We've actually offered to be one of the beta testing sites, and uh, we still have to. We're still waiting to hear whether we've been included in that. But if we are, that would enable us to do the test uh, here in Hawaii much more quickly than if we have to wait for the, the beta testing to be done at other laboratories. Okay, um, so no we'll, definite date then on that. The, um, the range of time when we are expecting to get this would be uh, early to mid-March. Um, so it's still a couple weeks away, very likely. Um, again, they, they want to be sure that the test kit works. Uh, um, no one wants to see another um, uh, round of, of testing where we aren't able to uh, to rely on the results from this test. We have contacted um, other Pacific Island jurisdictions, and they're they're um, they're um, hoping that we will have the test so we can test uh, samples they send to us. That includes American Samoa and Guam, FSM, and some of the other U.S. associated jurisdictions. Uh, that will shorten the, the testing period for those labs as well. And Our lab is, is capable of doing the test. It's um, a fairly standard test called a PSA testing process, which involves um, essentially DNA fingerprinting of sorts, uh, where where we can determine exactly what the virus is, and and uh, it's usually very very reliable. There was apparently some contamination in one of the probes that was sent to the states that that caused the false positives that um, were seen in other states. That was State Health Director Bruce Anderson talking about efforts to limit any spread of the coronavirus given that two Japanese visitors became ill while they were here on Maui and Oahu. It's not clear, but they may have contracted the disease in Japan before traveling to the islands. Climate change is a national security threat to the United States. That was the message given to U.S. senators in a recent briefing by national security experts. They say climate-related events are already fueling conflict and political instability around the world. HBR's Ryan Finnerty has this report today. Wars spurred by a failing climate may seem like dystopian science fiction, but experts like Andrew Holland with the American Security Project say climate change is already acting as what they call a threat multiplier. That means the climate affects issues like food, water, energy security, and its second-order effects create economic and political challenges. Holland says those pressures can exacerbate security challenges like mass migration. In Central America, he says climate change is already reducing crop yields, driving farmers into cities. Which, by the way, are the most violent cities in the world. And then those people then are, are ripe and, and turn towards our borders. On the other side of the world, in Syria, climate change helped spark a civil war that has killed more than 400,000 people. John Conger heads the Center for Climate and Security. We had a tense situation with hundreds of thousands of refugees from the Iraq war. Record multi-year drought disrupted Syria's agricultural sector and drove farmers to abandon their farms and move to urban areas, amplifying the tension in those regions. But the security threat of climate change is also being felt at home. Illinois Senator Tammy Duckworth cited nearly $10 billion in damage to U.S. military bases from just two hurricanes in 2018. While these bases may rebuild over time, the loss of training and readiness cannot be recovered. Because of the damages from the storm, 
One-third of the entire combat power of the Marine Corps has been degraded and will continue to degrade. One-third. A 2019 Pentagon report found that almost 60% of bases surveyed were at risk of climate change-related degradation from problems like recurrent flooding, wildfires, and drought. Two Hawaii facilities made that list, Joint Base Pearl Harbor-Hickam and Fort Shafter. Although the U.S. military has become the preferred tool of American policymakers in recent years, Andrew Holland says there are no security solutions in a world that ignores the challenges of climate change. A world of drastically changed food supplies, sea levels, and water availability would be a world that would be beyond the capability of global military forces to secure. And that capacity isn't likely to increase. The federal government is already running a record budget deficit, and the Defense Department just announced almost $4 billion will be diverted from purchasing new ships and aircraft. That money will instead be spent on President Trump's border wall. And now Ryan joins us live in the studio. So, Ryan, what's the impact uh, like here in Hawaii specifically? Hey, Catherine. And uh, yeah, we heard in that story, uh, there was this report, 2019. It came out about a year ago, January 2019. uh, And it was a survey of a selection of Defense Department facilities uh, around the United States. Um, And there were, they didn't do everything. There's hundreds of U.S. military bases around the world, but they picked 79 to survey. And of those 79, more than 40 were found to have some kind of risk of climate-related degradation. It was almost 60%. Two of those were here in Hawaii, and two of our uh, most important bases, Joint Base Pearl Harbor-Hickam, and the Army's Fort Shafter on the south shore of Oahu. Um, Those were both found to already be experiencing some form of of climate-related damage. Both bases were found to already have risk of recurrent flooding. And we kind of know that even in parts of Honolulu, that's already an issue when there's king tides or a heavy rain. Some neighborhoods are already flooding. Um, So those two bases, which are um, not too far from the coast, are already experiencing recurrent flooding and have potential for that in the future. Um, Pearl Harbor is also experiencing an ongoing risk of drought already, the report found, um, and it has the future potential to be at risk of wildfire damage. A lot of people don't know that, but Hawaii does actually have a pretty high uh, burn rate per uh, per acre um, in the western U.S. Um, and so there are these risks that are already building up, and we're not alone. There's facilities all over the country uh, that are experiencing this from coast to coast and some of the Pacific Island territories as well. Um, John Conger, who we heard in the report from the Center for Climate and Security, was discussing kind of how that looks, what types of risks these different bases are experiencing around the country. Sea level rise and its impact on coastal installations is the most frequently cited. But wildfires have forced evacuations and threatened installations out west, and they are occurring more and more frequently. But extreme weather has by far the biggest bill associated with it. Consider the $5 billion it'll cost to restore Tyndall Air Force Base in Florida, the $3.7 billion cost of repairs at Camp Lejeune on the North Carolina coast, the billion-dollar cost imposed by record flooding of the Missouri River that overwhelmed Offutt Air Force Base. These disasters all occurred since late 2018. And he points out that more than $10 billion just in the second half of one year to just military bases, that doesn't even count damage to private property and other public public property in those areas. For anyone who forgot the quick numbers on that, um, Tyndall Air Force Base on the Florida Gulf Coast was damaged by Hurricane Michael in 2018 caused $25 billion worth of damage to the broader community, um, $5 billion to the base itself, as we heard. Uh, 95% of the buildings on the base were damaged, um, including some of the Air Force's F-22 stealth fighter jets, which are some of the most expensive and advanced aircraft in the world. Um, and there was a big concern about a loss of readiness because a lot of those planes had to be relocated to survive the storm. Some of them couldn't fly because of maintenance issues and had to ride it out and and were damaged. Um, Camp Lejeune, which is the the largest Marine Corps facility on the East Coast, uh, one of the most important facilities for that branch of the military, was also damaged that year by Hurricane Florence caused $3.6 billion in damage, 900 buildings uh, were damaged on the base, Um, and Senator Tammy Duckworth, we heard in the story, say that one-third of the combat power of the entire Marine Corps was degraded as a result of that. Um, And so that has created some calls 
as we've heard with uh, with cities that have been damaged by storms to look at relocating or retreating from the coast a little bit. Hawaii Senator Brian Schatz was one of the uh, people kind of expressing concern about that. He said in this hearing that he was the only senator to express concern about just rebuilding Tyndall Air Force Base where it was, and he kind of uh, discussed that a little bit in the hearing. My question is, at, at some point, aren't we going to have to think about relocation? And I know that the politics of that are nearly impossible because I was the lonely person saying, are we sure we want to rebuild Tyndall where it is? And I lost that because there are politics involved in the, lo- in the, in the economics of, of the location of bases. But at some point, don't we have to look at managed retreat? Otherwise, we're going to keep basically building and rebuilding the same city over and over again because we're afraid of making a particular member of Congress angry. And they have good reason to be angry about that idea, though, because Tyndall Air Force Base, just that one base, generates more than $500 million in economic activity for that local community alone. You can imagine how big of uh, a issue it would create here if Pearl Harbor was closed down or Schofield Barracks or right. something like that. And you haven't wondered, gosh, when the military gets hit, where do they go? Yeah. And uh, and then, there, you know, there are worldwide consequences to the loss of of capability that goes along with that. All right. Interesting. Thanks so much, Ryan. Sure thing. That was HPR reporter Brian Finnerty joining us in studio with new findings on the correlation between climate change and global instability. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Inkinen Executive Search. Since 1992, helping Hawaii organizations find leaders from across the nation and around the world. I-N-K-I-N-E-N dot com. I'm Bert Lum. Today on Bike Marks Cafe, we'll circle back with the organizers of Purple Prize to see what teams are gaining traction. We'll also find out about their design workshop, Kamaka Inana, the next Purple Prize series, and Indigenous Innovation at UH. That's today at 6.30 p.m. on Bite Marks Cafe. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, presenting For You Fabulous, Fashionable Women, woodblock prints featuring women from the Edo period in Japan through March 22nd. HonoluluMuseum.org. Dealing with our housing crisis, that's the subject of today's Reality Check and part of the Fault Line series from our partners at Honolulu Civil Beat. Reporter Christina Jedra on the line today. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. So tell us, what bills have you been tracking down there at the legislature? (laughs) Well, there's this massive housing bill at the legislature that's pretty interesting this year because it, uh, the House and Senate leadership, along with the governor, say they all agree um, that they have this big solution to uh, our housing problems. Um, and there's one part of that today that is uh, getting some pushback. <laughs> and which bill is this? Is there a particular this bill? Is, yeah, it's Senate Bill 3104. So this is part of the um, joint legislative package that kind of everyone uh, in power agrees on. This uh, has to do with the Land Use Commission. Um, it's part of a, the larger housing bill. But what this piece of it would do is allow developers to sidestep the Land Use Commission for projects up to 25 acres. Right now it's 15. And so the idea is that this would speed up affordable housing projects, you know, one less vetting procedure to do. Um, And so, you know, less of a delay, which um, can make things kind of costly for developers. Right. I mean, there is a lot of red tape, but there is also the concern that I think was common cause raised the the flag that, you know, there may be this uh, joint uh, united front, uh, but at what cost? And and is the transparency going to be there for these projects? 
Exactly. So a lot of community members are raising concerns about this because what this bill would do for better or worse is eliminate an opportunity for public input at a time when, you know, after all the protest movements we saw last year, people are demanding more of a voice in land use decisions, not less. Um, and the Land Use Commission does provide a pretty unique opportunity for folks. So unlike at a county council meeting, for example, where you can get up and testify for a couple minutes, um, you don't have the opportunity to really become a party and a challenger in the process. You can't cross-examine the developer or really force them to answer your questions. At the Land Use Commission, you can. And so critics of this bill are saying, we don't want to lose that process. So I imagine there are some environmental groups that are a little wary. That's right. Yeah. Um, some environmental advocates like the Sierra Club are really pushing against this. They say that the Land Use Commission um, does a different job from the county for the reason I stated before, but also that they have a statewide perspective. They they look at food security in schools, natural and cultural resources, things that the county level might not be considering. Um, Marty Townsend with the Sierra Club also said that the counties have an interest in converting ag land to residential because they get more tax revenue. Um, so the the incentives are a little different for each group. And um, at least for the Sierra Club, they want to keep the Land Use Commission intact for, for those projects between 15 and 25 acres. So I imagine, though, the uh, uh, building industry folks um, and the chamber are in support of moving this bill ahead, though. Yeah, this is something that developers have long wanted. David Arakara at uh, the Land Use Research Foundation says that the Land Use Commission is duplicative with the county um, and, you know, our most powerful uh, legislators here in Hawaii seem to agree that this is uh, a change worth doing in the name of affordable housing. So uh, we'll have to see how it goes. There is a Ways and Means Committee on Tuesday at 1230 at the Capitol. Um, so there will be more discussion there. Uh, any other um, issues that have come up um, in regard to this particular bill? Um, well, the Office of Hawaiian Affairs has said that they really want to keep the status quo. They say the Land Use Commission gives Native Hawaiians really their only opportunity to meaningfully address their cultural concerns. So they're pushing hard against this bill. Okay, so we'll see what happens uh, come Tuesday. Thanks so much. Thanks, Catherine. That was reporter Christine, De Christine De Jedra with today's Reality Check. To read her stories on this issue, visit civilbeat.org. On this date in 1942, months after the Pearl Harbor attack, President Franklin D. Roosevelt signed into law Executive Order 9066. It led to the forced removal and incarceration of 120,000 Americans of Japanese descent along the West Coast and Hawaii. Decades later, it was deemed unlawful and led to redress and a formal apology from the U.S. government. Eric Yamamoto is the Fred T. Korematsu Professor of Law and Social Justice at the University of Hawaii Law School. He was also part of Fred Korematsu's legal team in the successful reopening of his World War II suit and the author of In the Shadow of Korematsu, Democratic Liberties and National Security. We spoke to him about Fred Korematsu and the Day of Remembrance. Fred Korematsu was one of four people who challenged the World War II Japanese-American forced removal and ultimately incarceration of 120,000 innocent persons of Japanese ancestry, mostly American citizens, in desolate West Coast concentration camps, often re euphemistically referred to as internment camps. Uh, Fred Korematsu, in particular, was the person who challenged the uh, removal and incarceration and had his case go all the way up to the United States Supreme Court. And the court decided in 1944 that military necessity justified this mass, mass racial treatment of a single ethnic group. Supreme Court, in essence, upheld the legality then of removing and then incarcerating innocent Americans without any charges, without any trial, without any proof or conviction of wrongdoing, then imprisoning them for indefinite period until the end of the war. 
on grounds that national security required it. And so Fred Korematsu stood as one of the people who challenged the incarceration and lost. This case was in all of the constitutional law books, and it was a heavy burden for Fred to carry for 40 years or more. Then in the early 1980s, researchers found government documents from World War II, which showed that the government knew that there had been no military necessity to justify mass incarceration, and then had essentially fabricated evidence that lied to the Supreme Court in support of President Roosevelt's Executive Order 9066, which initiated the removal of incarceration. Based on those documents, Fred Korematsu in San Francisco and Minya Sui in Oregon and Gwendra Briashi in Seattle, the three of the people who challenged the World War II military orders, reopened their cases through writs of quorum nobis, a very rare procedure, essentially seeking to undo the Supreme Court's decision 40 years earlier. And based on these government documents that had been discovered, the courts in all three cases agreed that a manifest injustice had occurred, that indeed all of the military services uh, agencies involved in investigating Japanese-American potential disloyalty had concluded before Executive Order 9066 and reported it to the highest levels in the government and the military the Japanese Americans had not committed espionage, had not committed sabotage, did not pose a threat as a group to the American security during the war. So based on those documents that show that the government covered up that, those intelligence reports and indeed doctored evidence by General DeWitt, who had made, issued the military orders, all of those documents combined uh, impelled the courts to rule that indeed the mass incarceration was, in the words of the Congressional Investigative Commission that preceded these cases, that the mass incarceration and removal were based on war hysteria, race prejudice, and a failure of political leadership. So it was the these Kormobus rulings by the courts that originally had convicted these men that really opened the floodgates to the claims for redress and an apology from the U.S. government. And indeed, that is what happened in 1988, the Civil Liberties Act, in which Congress appropriated, or excuse me, authorized the payment of reparations, $20,000 to surviving internee, which then directed the president to apologize to each individual surviving internee and to create a public education fund so that these kinds of things would not happen again. And so Fred Korematsu, in particular, uh, continued after the Civil Liberties Act of 1988 to begin to speak about the dangers of unfettered government authority and military authority over innocent American citizens who are deemed to be dangerous but proved ultimately to have not been dangerous at all. And so that's kind of the relevance today of what Fred Korematsu, Gordon Herbayashi, Minyasui, and ultimately Minyasui Endo, who challenged the while she was interned, the legacy of their cases and how it resonates today. What does the Japanese community do today to remember the, the suffering that they went through and, and their ancestors uh, went through? Well, the Day of Remembrance is a day of commemoration of the Japanese-American exclusion and incarceration. But it's important to, to know that the remembrance is not just looking backwards, but it's a step towards acknowledgement of what is happening today to taking action to make sure that injustice does not occur again. And so the remembrance looking backward is really important because many people still do not know the full story about the mass uh, incarceration and how there was no military necessity grounds for it and that the government fabricated the essential legal basis for that. And that's a very important story. So it's the suffering of the people, the stigma they carried for many, many years, but it's also showing how the legal system failed at that time. And that becomes the important bridge to what is happening today. And in fact, after 9-11, the Japanese-American community, through the days of remembrance in cities throughout the U.S., said, of course, attacks on U.S. soil, on U.S. institutions and people are really horrible. And those need to be prevented, and those responsible need to be brought to justice. At the same time, the Japanese-American community did through the days of remembrance of those who participated in it, and many other civil liberties groups as well as ordinary citizens, was a good 
convey the message that it is simultaneously not okay to stereotype entire groups of people, to tar them as dangerous people by virtue of their race or religion or cultural affiliation, and then to take very harsh action against the entire group of people while disregarding their very fundamental constitutional liberties enshrined in the Constitution, and very importantly, the right to due process, not be excluded or imprisoned or deprived of property um, without due process of law, having charges, a hearing, and a fair adjudication. So all of these fundamental liberties are at stake. In the Japanese-American community, and through the Days of Remembrance, and those supporting it, began to then resurrect those lessons after 9-11 to make sure that the treatment of Arabs and Muslims and those um, who were then grouped together and characterized very broadly, not by everyone, but some in the media, some in private organizations, some individuals, as potentially disloyal, or actually disloyal to the United States by reason of ethnicity or religion. So these remembrance have become very important at that and to continue along that uh, vein today. That was Eric Yamamoto, the Fred T. Kuramatsu Professor of Law and Social Justice at the UH Law School. He spoke with R. Jason Ubai this morning. And we should add there is a Day of Remembrance event this coming Saturday at the Japanese Cultural Center of Hawaii. For more information, visit HonoluluPublicRadio.org or Hawaii Public Radio. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Chamber Music Hawaii. The Trey Sample and mezzo-soprano Lori Rubin perform music of Schubert and more February 24th at Doris Duke Theater. ChamberMusicHawaii.org Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hi, I'm Dr. B.J. Miller, co-author of A Beginner's Guide to the End. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about how facing death helps us live life. Sunday morning at 11. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Ferraro Choi, architects for the Natural Energy Laboratory of Hawaii Authorities Hawaii Gateway Energy Center in Kailua, Kona. FerraroChoi.com. As we come off the president's holiday, we bring you a story about Hawaii's own president, Barack Obama. His presidential library is being built in Chicago. But leading up to the holiday weekend, there was a roadshow of sorts at the Bishop Museum. Dozens of people brought items to be considered for inclusion into the Chicago venue. Louise Bernard is the director of the Obama Library, who is traveling across the country for collection events, seeking out treasures to tell President Obama's story. So we're building the Obama Presidential Center Museum. It will be situated in Jackson Park, which is on the south side of Chicago. As many people know, this is where President Obama really found his footing as a community organizer. It's where Mrs. Obama was born and raised. Uh, and so we're really interested in telling the broader story of the Obama presidency. Uh, that means telling a nuanced contextual history. It means really thinking about a living legacy of the nation's first African-American president. Uh, and because he was a community organizer, we had this wonderful opportunity to crowdsource materials for the museum. So people often think that artifacts that they find in museums, they're these objects that are behind glass, they're somehow distant from their own individual lives. These are kind of rarefied treasures that they find in a museum. But we want people to understand the objects that they may have tell incredible stories. And this is a wonderful opportunity for people to share something that is so meaningful to them about this presidency with the museum that we're building. 
And so we have this opportunity to crowdsource materials in a way that many um, museums may not have. We're in ongoing conversation with President and Mrs. Obama and some of their family members, friends, again, telling this really rich story of the presidency as it stretches all the way back to those founding formative years in Chicago, to their life in the White House and beyond. We've actually initiated a series of crowdsourcing events. We call them community collections gatherings. Uh, we had our first event in Chicago on the south side. We partnered with Rebuild Foundation uh, at the Stony Island Arts Bank. And so we invited people to really think about the materials they have that connected to Chicago and especially to those formative moments in the 2008 presidential campaign, to election night in Grant Park. And then we took the show on the road, so to speak. We went to Iowa, uh, really thinking about Iowa as proof of concept uh, for the Obama campaign in 2008. We were able to connect to just a host of really wonderful set of volunteers who had been on the ground in Iowa. We made three stops. We went to North Liberty, we went to Mason City, we went to Des Moines. Uh, and just, it's now a real honor to be here in Honolulu, in Hawaii, uh, to be able to connect again to this formative part of President Obama's story. And so of the items that people have brought forward in the two stops that you made already, I guess is there something that really kind of excited you that maybe you didn't expect to see? One of the things that's wonderful about this particular story, again, because it's so attached to the grassroots, to community organizing, to civic engagement, was seeing all of the rich ephemera that was part of the 2008 campaign in particular. We've also seen wonderful materials from the 2012 campaign. But again, just the creativity um, in terms of all of, not only the, formal the more formal merchandising, but the, the amazing things that people made, all of the banners, um, the t-shirts, uh, all of that kind of material culture. Uh, people captured really wonderful images. Um, so they're all of the banners and the stickers and the posters that really help to tell this iconic story. And so what are you looking for here on the islands? Anything that connects to the 2008 campaign, anything that is particularly evocative of Hawaii, of that aloha spirit. We know that, again, people are really active on the ground. We think about the personalized aspects of the story, the way that people really individualized campaign ephemera. And so that's what we're looking for. And also I will add that in terms of crowdsourcing objects, we're also gathering the stories that go with them. So objects tell stories in different kinds of ways. And while many people may have a campaign button, for example, it's the story that goes with it, where they wore it, what memory it conjures up for them when they think about it now. Uh, and so that is, is really part of this museum experience, the stories that connect to the objects. And then we think about ongoing collecting. Uh, there may be other objects that are connected to, for example, Mrs. Obama, um, her post-White House legacy, we think about becoming, uh, the way in which she is an ongoing role model for many people, the way in which she connects to um, people around the world. It's really a global story that we're telling, but it has a sense of rootedness. So whether it's a story rooted in Chicago, whether it's a story that comes to us through the wonderful space of Hawaii and the president's upbringing, we're really able to bring that to life. So then the focus is, is the, the campaign um, as opposed to, you know, stories of him growing up here, items tied to his uh, childhood? Both. Um, certainly his formative years in Hawaii are important to us. Um, so there may be people who have, mem have memorabilia from school years, uh, from Punahou, um, from other aspects of island life. And again, these could be representative things of a place and a time. Uh, we'd also love to capture that as well. Okay, so um, you've got a number of people that have signed up. I don't know if you've reached out to, let's say, the Punohu alum, you know, his, his old classmates, that guy's teachers, mm -hmm. but will there be a second go around? Like First of all, we think about the building of what we call the inaugural core exhibits. So these are the exhibits, the objects that will be on display when the museum opens, and they're helping to illustrate uh, a, a really rich story around the Obama presidency. But we also think about collections and building a collection in the broader sense. Um, so there is the need for preservation in terms of the objects. They need to be rotated depending on material. Some things are more fragile than other things. 
So we also want to collect as broadly and as deeply as we can so that we can rotate objects over time so that we're good stewards of the collection. We also think about objects that can be used in different ways in classroom settings, thinking about digitizing objects for online exhibitions. So there are myriad ways in which we can share uh, the material culture of the museum. There's certainly a way in which we can reach people online and so we ask people to go to our website to www.obama.org to find information about our collecting mission and people can share information with us online. Okay and, and this is really an event where people can show you what they have not necessarily turn items over today but at least they'll be considered with the array of, of things that turn up in the next couple of days. That's absolutely right. We have to be very careful um, in terms of thinking about our stewardship of collection material. Um, so we don't want to just put objects in our suitcases and, and take them back to Chicago. Um, but this is an opportunity for people to share information about their object. We take photographs of the material. Uh, we understand what the story is that goes with the object. And then we're best able to follow up with people once we've made a very careful selection. And so uh, give us a timeline, you know, what's the hope for the opening of the museum? We are going through what's called a federal filing review process, and so once that uh, is complete, we'll be able to move towards groundbreaking, and then we'll go from there. All right, but still 10 years, five years, I don't really know what's Within the next projection. five years, five years? yes, okay. that we'll, we'll see the museum come to life. But that said, in terms of the opening day of the museum, there are many wonderful programs that the Obama Foundation is already running out in the world. There's lots of work that the museum um, is the museum team is doing on the ground in Chicago. Okay. So there's lots of activity. And on hand for one of the weekend events was Bishop Museum scientist Richard Pyle. He's been studying reef fish for the past 30 years. He is the museum's ichthyologist curator who discovered a new species of fish in the Northwest Hawaiian Islands that was named for Obama. The rare discovery came as the president expanded the marine preserve, Papahanao Mokuakea, and that fish will likely be part of the exhibit. In 2016, uh, the summer of 2016, Bishop Museum was collaborating with NOAA, you know, the federal agency, to go on a cruise up to the Northwestern Hawaiian Islands, which we now know as the Papahanao Mokuakea Marine National Monument. And our job up there every year was to survey the deep coral reefs, deeper than where scuba divers can go. We use this high-tech advanced gear that use special gas mixtures and let us go uh, three feet, 300 feet below the surface where people don't normally go to. And on one particular dive in June of 2016, uh, at a depth of about 300 feet, at the end of the dive, I saw a fish I didn't recognize. It was strange because I know the fish in Hawaii very well, and it's not often I see one I don't recognize. And so I collected a specimen and brought it up to the surface, and um, we quickly discovered that it was a brand new species. Uh, and finding a new species of fish in Hawaii is not a common thing because it's been so well explored. And um, Coincidentally, at the time we discovered this in the Papahanao Mokuake Marine National Monument, uh, President Obama was simultaneously deciding whether or not he wanted to expand that monument, make it four times larger than it had been to encompass a bigger patch of the ocean to protect it. And um, well, a couple of months after we collected that new species, he did expand the monument, creating what was then the world's largest marine protected area. And we felt how appropriate to honor him for doing that, for protecting these coral reefs by naming its newest discovery after him. So we chose to name the fish. It's called Tosinoides Obama in, in, in honor of the president. And so describe this fish to our listeners. So the fish is actually quite beautiful. It's small. It's only a couple of inches long, but it's sort of reddish pink. And then the male is darker red and the female is more of an orangish color. And the male has a spot, a big prominent spot on its dorsal fin. And the spot is blue, it's a circle, blue circle, and inside are these wavy red and yellow lines. And it reminded me of President Obama's campaign logo, which is actually the first thing that made me think of maybe, you know, giving it that name. And so it's hard to see in the photos that we have, but when you see the actual live fish, you can see this little spot that looks kind of like the Obama campaign logo. And so there's another reason why we thought it was an appropriate, appropriate name. 
So were you able to talk to him and tell him about this fish, and was he just kind of tickled <laughs> about the, you know, the connection there? I have not yet had the opportunity to speak to him directly about it, but a good friend of mine, Dr. Sylvia Earle, who's a fairly well-known marine biologist, um, she and I were involved in a National Geographic documentary film on the marine protected areas in the United States, and obviously the Papahanaumokuakea monument was one of those featured. And so the producers of that film arranged for Sylvia and I to fly up to Midway Atoll and a few others to film portions of this documentary the day before President Obama arrived to visit the monument himself just after he had expanded it. And unfortunately, the Secret Service wouldn't let me stay. They let uh, Sylvia stay, but not me. Um, and so uh, Sylvia kindly asked the president permission for us to name the fish in his honor, and of course he was delighted uh, for us to do so. So I know he was happy that we did it. I just haven't been able to talk to him personally. About oh, well, I hope you get a chance to. <laughs> I, I do too. The display with the fish, I mean, that's going to be part of the thing here, but it could be then also part of the library in uh, Chicago? Yes, so we have uh, two specimens of the fish, and those are very important scientific specimens. And so one of them will stay here at Bishop Museum in our fish collection, and another one will go to the Smithsonian Institution and stay in that fish collection. But we have a nice framed canvas photograph of the fish, which has been signed by myself and the other two authors of it, uh, Brian Green and Randall Kosaki. And um, the three of us hope to present that picture to him for display in the Presidential Center. And that's uh, one of the things we've been talking to them about. I mean, it's always exciting to find a new species. That's sort of what we're in the business of trying to do. But in this case, it was a convergence of events that just fit naturally and very perfectly. And it made it much more exciting than, than our usual discoveries are. And it's a beautiful little fish, too. So it's always nice to have a very colorful, beautiful, mysterious fish and name it after somebody important. Is there anything that you, you've been able to find out about it? Anything additional? Well, we certainly would like to know more about it. Um, at, at, at this point in time, only two human beings have ever seen it in its natural habitat. Uh, I saw it on one day. I saw two of them. And then my friend Brian Green on the very next day saw three of them. And nobody else has ever seen them. And in both cases, we only saw them in the end of our dive. So we only saw them in their natural habitat for a couple of minutes. There's some video on YouTube that I took of the first one that shows what it looks like. But the thing is, nobody's ever seen it, so we haven't had the opportunity to learn anything about its behavior ecology since. We've been looking for it, and one of these days we're going to figure out where it lives, and then we'll know a lot more about it. But it still remains a mystery. And so what depths did you find it at? We've seen them at 300 feet. Now, we've, they're very rare. We've only seen them twice, so we don't know. We know they don't live shallower than that because we've done a lot of diving shallower than that and never saw it. They may live much deeper than that, and maybe the reason we only seen a few is because we're seeing the very shallowest individuals. So perhaps taking a submarine or going up there and going deeper, we might figure out where the rest of the population is. And on display that particular weekend at the Bishop Museum were items on loan from the Obama Ohana. It included little sculptures that the president made as a young boy attending Noilani Elementary. Bishop Museum Director Melanie Ide worked as a principal with uh, Ralph Applebaum Associates. It's the uh, museum planning firm that is not only behind the Obama Presidential Center, but was involved with the African American Museum in Washington, D.C. Ide is reunited with her former Museum Ohana in this latest effort. We're hosting, helping to host um, the Obama Foundation's community collections um, program. It's really to engage uh, and, and uh, invite people to bring uh, things that may be, of, uh, um, I would say, things that they have in their own possession that they have stories around uh, relating. Now that the foundation folks are, are here and we're looking at the kinds of materials that we have um, in our own collections, we're, we're, we're taking the opportunity to look at what kind of, um, almost like a mini moment or a mini exhibit um, that we can do here almost as a, as a pop-up to invite the community in to take a look at some of the materials that we have here. So we're going to be thinking about that because I think it'll be fun and um, interesting just for our own local community to see some of the, the materials that um, we have right here at Bishop Museum. I saw out at the African that you've got some of the things that uh, Barack Obama made when he was a child, but I guess they're on loan here from the family? Mm -hmm. Yes, they, so we do have some materials on loan from the family, and one of, one of my own favorites is this handprint 
of when, um, and, and it's a clay handprint, and it says Barry, and I said, I think it says three months and three years and 11 months, so it's this very um, splayed out handprint, has a lot of energy in it. Um, and there's a little uh, ashtray that was made when he was young. You know, what's, what's interesting is that we have, we have materials that are both on loan and accessioned into the museum's collections that represent, I think, President Obama's um, from very early age and all the way up until the point to the very end of his presidency. And it sort of circles, starts in Hawaii and sort of ends back in Hawaii in this kind of beautiful way with the National Marine Monument um, being... Uh, being designated, and I think that full circle story is uh, it's a beautiful, beautiful one for Hawaii. So look for those many moments on the road to the White House as the museum community looks to showcase the history around our 44th president, Hawaii's son. If you miss the Roadshow event but think you might have an interesting story about something of value for the exhibit, find links to the Obama Library at our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. migrant children are separated from their family, they usually spend a few months in U.S. custody. Not this teenager. She's spent longer in federal immigration custody than any other kid I've ever heard about. Reveals Arabagato found a sister and her brother who haven't seen their family for six years. This wasn't family separation. For them, these children were disappeared. On the next Reveal. Tonight at 7, following Mike Mark's Cafe. That wraps it up for us tomorrow. Our plan is to sit down in studio with Senate President Ron Kochi for the first part of our show. Got questions to ask or a concern you'd like to share? Call or talk back line. Record your comments. Here's that number, 808-792-8217. You can also email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Find us at Facebook at The Conversation HPR or Twitter at HI Conversation. This show and all our past ones available on the conversation page at hawaiipublicradio.org. I'm Catherine Cruz. We'll be back tomorrow with more of The Conversation.